This podcast episode contains discussions and references to family and domestic violence, which may be distressing or triggering for some listeners. If you or someone you know is in need of support or resources related to these topics, please consider reaching out to a local helpline or support organisation. If you or someone you know is in need of help due to sexual assault or family and domestic violence, you can call 1800RESPECT on 1800 737 732. If you are concerned about your behaviour or someone using violence, call Men's Referral Service on 1300 766 491. And in an emergency, call triple zero. Hello and welcome to The Crux, the weekly Women's Agenda podcast. In today's episode, we are talking about the epidemic of domestic and family violence in Australia in what has really been a horror couple of weeks. We also share an interview separately with the Minister for Families and Social Services of Australia, Amanda Rishworth, a little bit later on in the episode. And we have a special guest who I'm about to announce shortly. Thank you for listening. This week's show is supported by Lend With Care Australia. Lend With Care is a revolutionary way to help people change their lives, creating big change through small loans. Millions of hardworking people around the world have big ideas to support their families and all they need is the right opportunity. You can help provide that opportunity today. With as little as $25, you can help a person get their ideas off the ground and change their family's future. You lend, they grow, they repay, and then you can relend to someone else. Visit lendwithcare.org.au and start lending today. We are recording this episode of The Crux on the 2nd of November, 2023. My name is Angela Priestley. I'm joining you from Gadigal Land. And today I am really pleased to welcome a special guest co-host, Catherine Burney. Hello, Catherine. How are you? Hello. How are you? I am good. Thank you. Um, So Catherine is the Executive Director of the National Women's Safety Alliance. And Catherine, I will in a moment ask for your win for the week, which uh, as you know, we do like to do each episode. Before I do that, if I can, I might just read out a very short bio just because obviously your experience and the work that you do is so relevant to the discussion that we are having this week. So Catherine, I believe you've been there, what, since early 2022 in your role there? Yeah. So quite fresh in the role and recently named the emerging leader in the not-for-profit sector at the Women's Agenda Leadership Awards, basically for your passionate, inclusive campaign to end violence against women. So thank you for all your work and congratulations on the win. You did an amazing speech up on stage a few weeks ago in Melbourne. Thank you. I was blown away. I That category had so many amazing women doing just such brilliant programs. It is so necessary. So I was surprised uh, and humble that I won. Thank you very much. That category, it's a really, really tough category. It's um, possibly the most competitive on the program and one that we've always had there. And what we see is people like obviously doing really different types of work and addressing really different areas in the not-for-profit sector. And always just so passionate and hardworking and talented. Amazing work on the win and also amazing work from all the finalists and thank you for acknowledging them as well. A little bit more on you, Catherine, is that under your leadership, the NWSA is a trusted government advisor and has influenced major federal policy reforms in domestic family and sexual violence with a membership that includes more than 400 individuals and organisations. 
Catherine is passionate about social, economic and safety equity for women and children and understands the power of the women's alliances and the collaborative strength of the sector. And from your bio, I also know that you have a strong not-for-profit background, which includes working internationally with the Red Cross in the South Pacific and on the DV Alert program as part of the National Safety Plan. So amazing. Thank you for being here. I love the collaborative aspect of the work that you do. Obviously, so important. Stronger together. This is a huge issue that we have in the country and no one person is going to solve it. We need to solve it together. Mm. There is enough room at the table for everyone. We are going to get to more on that in a minute. First, can I ask you a win for the week? So I think that most of the women's sector is still sort of coasting and celebrating the win of the family law reforms that have just come through both houses. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was a huge piece of work for the National Women's Safety Alliance, but also a huge piece of work that has been going since before 2006 when the presumption of shared care was introduced by the Howard government. Some of our members who worked with us this year were arguing against the presumption in 2006. So this has been a really long journey that we all stand on the shoulders of giants for, but it was just such an emotional moment. I didn't realise how important it was to me uh, until it passed the house and I, uh, yeah, I I was crying and I had a lot of people reach out to me who were crying as well. They were just so happy because now we have a law that centers on the safety of children and it's beyond time for that. Mm. I think that's so interesting what you say about 2006. And, and, I mean, this is what we see with, with you know, various types of legislation where we, we don't, we think about some of the work that was going in decades earlier where, yeah. you know, things around say superannuation or something and we don't see and where women weren't necessarily listened to at the time and how the fight needs to continue and go on in this case for almost two decades mm. to finally get that that shift that was needed there. Mm. Yeah, and I think that that's really important. We do have a national focus currently on violence against women and children, and I think that that's a focus that we need to have nationally. But there have been a lot of people who have been asking for this focus for a really long time. It's not necessarily that people are innovating solutions at the moment that are going to give us the magic effortless solution to solve violence against women and children it just it it doesn't exist and what we need to do is ensure that we are always working together we are always listening to those who have come before us and we are you know celebrating our wins together I think it suits people who don't want social change for there to be fractured nature of the women's safety sector but we've just got to push through that and become bigger and better and stronger together Mm. I am going to follow a similar theme with my win. I was actually going to go somewhere else, but I will follow a similar theme because we've talked about various aspects of the sector working together, the collaborative approach. So I wanted to quickly point to the fact that three politicians from across party lines, three prominent women have joined together to call for a renewed focus on what they describe and they call it the epidemic of men's violence against women in Australia. And so those three were Senator Larissa Waters, Bridget Archer and Alicia Payne and they've issued the call as well as we saw the stats over the past couple of weeks where five women were killed in just 10 days. So I saw that as a positive to see those three women crossing those party lines and 
coming together and, you know, really issuing a strong statement there. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I was so happy uh, when I received that release yesterday. There's nothing partisan about this as an issue. Uh, Mm. There is nothing that one person is better at than the other. This is a broad social issue. It touches every aspect of society and there shouldn't be a political football about it. So I was incredibly impressed that the Parliamentary Friends did get that statement out. It 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 was great. And we need more of it. Yes, yes, we do. Okay, so Catherine, you've written a piece for us this week and it (laughs) touches on some of the things that you've already discussed now. But, I mean, that is really what I wanted to talk to you today about as our our key story, I guess. We usually try to get to three, four, five stories, but I think we are probably going to be sticking with this one at the moment. So we have had just uh, shockingly this horrific couple of weeks in Australia in terms of the numbers of women murdered by violence. At the point that you sent us this piece, it had hit that number of five women in in just 10 days, which was truly, truly shocking. Alongside that, we also saw a lot of headlines sort of trying to explain some of this behaviour of men that also just, just felt so far I felt like we'd come so far from that and yet we were suddenly seeing those headlines again and kind of that good guy type narrative that, well, this person was a school captain, this person was a sportsman, you know, how was he driven to do this and and just that sort of narrative sort of stirring up again, which I felt like we were well and truly done with. Can I ask you, where did that piece come from for you? What was the, the shift for you that sort of spurred you on to writing that piece? I think I was really taken aback as well, like you were, about the need to soften this allegedly violent choice that this person Mm -hmm. made. Let's be really clear. Good people don't bludgeon people to death. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they've done in their life. That is the legacy that that person has left. And I think it's incredibly important that we don't try and soften that. That's the reality. Those first responders, that's that's what they saw. And he chose that. He actively chose it. doesn't matter if he was a school captain. doesn't matter if he was good at sport. doesn't matter if he was a good bloke. He was not a good bloke in that moment. And then I, you know, there was this ridiculous article after a woman was allegedly murdered in Canberra where they went to talk to a resident who said, well, I walk my cat here. It's such an affluent suburb. I can't believe. I'm so shocked that there's violence. And I think, you know, when I reflect on the work that we do, the NCAS report from Anne Rose, I mean, there's just such a disconnect in terms of having 91% of respondents to that saying, yes, domestic family and sexual violence is an issue in Australia. Okay, tick, we've got that. And yet a majority of people don't think it's happening in their neighbourhood, in their community. Well, where is it happening then? (laughs) And I think that that for me, uh, just this disbelief and this shock and isn't this horrendous. I mean, this is a story of women and children mainly every day of the week. Every day of the week, our members and our frontline services are making miracles to keep women safe. You know, we've got so much research from Dr. Ann Summers that's come out that essentially says women who want to leave a violent situation having to make a choice. Mm. They either go into homelessness and poverty or they stay with the violence. Mm. And so you literally have to choose which is going to be safer. Mm. It's not right. Mm. 
And so I am astonished that we continue to see the narrative of this is an aberration. It's not an aberration. It's not at all. Yeah, it's not. I mean, and that Anne Rose research, I remember covering that when it came out and to to hear that around, I think it was around half or so, but people said that that violence against women isn't a problem in their suburb or in their town. And like you say, well, where is it happening then? Like where does this go on then if it isn't happening in in half our suburbs? And you always do, we often hear that where that those media reports, it's so common where people will sort of stand outside the house and they'll think, but this is a quiet street. This type of thing, it doesn't happen here, but it does happen because it happens it everywhere. It happens everywhere. It's in It's in every community. It's in every suburb. And also to be clear, I take no joy in saying that. I think that is horrific. However, we have to move past the idea that these crimes are other. And what happens when we have a horrific murder like Lily James? I mean, they were all horrific. I think the details of Lily James' murder, like, almost beg belief. They were Mm. so awful. And I think Mm. there's a need that people don't want to be confronted with the reality of that situation. So we need to soften it and we need to other it and say, well, people just snap. Someone's been driven to do this. There must have been a reason rather than just this individual felt entitled to take her life in a really horrible, scary, violent way. And we need to sit with how that feels. We don't need to explain it away. We need to sit with it and say this is not good enough and it shouldn't be happening. And I think that's what people are afraid to do. Does that make sense? I think I think that they're, they're kind of, oh, no, if I accept that, it means I'm going to confront this, like, horrible reality. And in some cases, maybe I'm going to have to reflect on some of my behavioural choices as an individual that I've made throughout my life. Mm. So... I want to move past that though. Yeah, I mean, in that particular case with Paul Thiegson, who is the man who's alleged to have murdered Lily James and who's believed that we've, um, the body of Paul Thiegson has been recovered from, from cliffs in Sydney. Mm. And there's been a lot of, you know, talk about what was happening in those hours leading up to that murder and what happened in the hours after that. And there, there's something about this case that obviously has sparked a lot of public interest, possibly because, I mean, it was in a, in a school, the details are so horrific as well. Mm. But then there's also something about him that seems to spark this need to other him, perhaps it is, or to try to figure out what was the reason. It's like, this person doesn't look like what a killer is supposed to look like or something. So we see yep. this, that's sort of what I feel has happened. And one story, I mean, I actually wrote about it this morning and it was a little bit inspired by your piece but as I woke up this morning the first headline that I saw was reason x murdered school coach Lily as if there was one reason and that this would explain it all and then we could all feel okay because we could all kind of get some kind of comfort and you know the reason was according to a psychologist or something was that he was a psychopath and then all of a sudden it was like again the othering thing oh okay he's an anomaly this isn't that 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 explains it that explains it. That he, he, he's anomaly, so we can all kind of go on and pretend that this isn't a wider issue that we're dealing with. One of the most powerful pieces of writing on domestic, family and sexual violence that I have ever read comes from Tom Marr, Jill Marr's husband. And it is he has called this article The Danger of the Monster Myth. Mm. And mm. I think why that piece resonates so strongly today for me still 
is that we as a society still haven't learnt the lessons from what happened there. You know, the fact that women are far more likely to be assaulted, abused, sexually abused by someone they know is still very confronting. Same with Mm. children and child abuse. It's a really confronting thing. But the problem is when we turn a perpetrator into a monster, we're not addressing the drivers of what that violence was. There were some comments on my article on LinkedIn and this one person wrote, do we know if he was on medication that made him do this? What are you talking about? Like that, there is no need for that discussion. This is why he did it. He's a psychopath. Okay, were you personally treating him? Mm. I found that one quite strange as well. I don't know yeah, how it, exactly. Um, and yeah. why is it so difficult to kind of go, this was a very disturbed individual, no doubt, but he felt entitled to do what he did. He felt that he had the right to do it. Mm. I think we have to sit with the uncomfortable nature of that if we want it to change. Mm. Do you think that sometimes we look for those explanations as well to try and feel safer? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you, as you said just before, you know, headline, this person was a psychopath. Psychopaths are really rare. Sociopaths, true sociopaths are really rare as well. So then that makes someone feel safe in their day-to-day. Well, that's not going to happen to me because... I'm not in that situation and I'll not come across a person like that. But (laughs) I think that history tells us the more that we think that these behaviours are other and not happening all the time, when as women in relationships we're exposed to them, we don't know what that is because Mm -hmm. we've spent so much time saying that won't happen to me, that will not be my end result. I will know if someone is a sociopath. And that's something I've been reflecting on as well. And I think that once we accept that, you know, the statistics don't lie. So a lot of women have been exposed to really bad behaviours. Now, whether or not they choose to self-identify as a victim survivor, like I have no comment on that. Everyone's story is uniquely personal to themselves and we're not owed anyone's story. But I do feel that these behaviours can become normalised because maybe that person didn't threaten you with a hammer, right, but they did cause damage in other ways. And so I think people need to understand horrendous crime because then they don't have to look at things that might be happening that they can engage with, that they can change. Mm. What do you think needs I, I can't. I don't even know how to ask this question without. I mean, it just—it's such a big question. But what what do you think needs to happen now? What what do we do from here? Everyone's outraged and upset, and but how do we actually make changes here? I think it's it's a case of doing the very deep cultural change work that's required, and you know there isn't going to be a singular solution. This is the thing, that there needs to be a suite of solutions. We need to have appropriate services and support for victim survivors. We need true accountability for perpetrators. We need in-depth primary prevention and prevention from early learning, which is happening. But I think it's now we need a concentrated effort where we start to 
to have messaging that is saying this is happening in your neighbourhood, this is happening in your street and that's okay. What we've got to do is then let that person know they shouldn't be ashamed. They can be safe. There are things they can engage with and I think it's addressing that fear of this is not a dirty secret to hide. It's actually something that people can engage with, they can have discussions with, there are ways to have safe discussions and we should all want to do it. Mm. So, Catherine, I did also really want to ask about your career because your trajectory into this position, your work with the Red Cross, when you left whatever study you did, what were your ambitions? Did you sort of see yourself working in this sector for not-for-profits, doing, you know, purpose-led work? Not at all. So I, my first study was opera singing. And okay. I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> there you go. Okay, I'm wow. Well, and I don't that, think we won't, well, your voice isn't warmed up, so we won't ask you to. <laughs> that um, <laughs> took me to Europe. I have always been interested in women's rights. I've always been interested in women's safety, but... I don't think I knew what that looked like. I just knew I had an interest in it. I did, as all musicians have to do, you have rent-paying jobs. And while I was in one of these rent-paying jobs, I was I was in an abusive relationship, except I didn't know it was an abusive relationship. I didn't know it all. Um, and I said this at the awards night that there were three people there who helped me and that was Joel and Jen and my brother Hugh uh, who all said to me, there is something seriously wrong with what's happening with you at the moment. We don't know who you are. Mm. Now, the end result of that was that I did end up losing a baby, um, which was just so in- incredibly gut-wrenchingly difficult and I was consumed with grief. Um, I was in a position where I could resign my job and I went home to move, uh, to live with my parents in Canberra and I spent a lot of time thinking about what made me happy because I wasn't happy. Uh, and the work that I found most satisfying was when I got to volunteer my time to work for charities. So I thought, well, I've always talked about going to a developing country to work. Time to put my money where my mouth is. Mm. So I applied and I got a job in Vanuatu. And in in Vanuatu, you do whatever is required because there is no one else. Like there's not teams of people who can help. If you need to go and sit with a victim of a crime, you sit with a victim of a crime. There's no discussion, are you a therapist? Are you this? At that time, it was like that person needs support. You have to do it. And and from then and from the amazing women that I got to work with, you know, a great mentor, Allegra Troiano, Karen Roberts, so many people who saw my interest in how we could make life safer and better for women and those kind of lessons and that mentoring and patience that they all had with me as I was working out my own feelings about my previous situation led me to go, this is what I want to do. This, this is who I, who I want to be. And so, yeah, I, I continued my not-for-profit journey with Lifeline Australia where I worked with DV Alert, as you're saying. And again, that, there were some just valuable grounding lessons in how we need to collaborate together and how we need to work together and there's strength in sector. 
And then from then on, it's just been my focus. That's what I want to do. This is what I feel is the right way to use the voice that I have. What an incredible career journey and all the places that you've been, it sounds like. So you're obviously in Europe for a time, you're in the South Pacific. Yeah, like I came home from Vanuatu and I had a contract to go to the Philippines uh, and I met my husband So and I stayed. So was that before the pandemic? Yeah. When you yeah. came home from Vanuatu? Okay. And taking the your career to that next sort of leadership step, what do you think has supported you there? You've, you've mentioned mentors Mm-hmm. But um, what is it? Do you think that you naturally have that leadership inclination or is it the experience or is it anything that's really enabled you to to go to that next level? I think that it's having the ability to know that you don't want to be the only voice in the room because that's not how we solve wicked social issues. It's understanding when to pass the mic and I have a willingness to learn all the time. And mm-hmm. I am so grateful. I think in any career, you have people who truly support you. And actually on that night, uh, one of the, in Melbourne, it was so great because Geraldine Bilston, who is a trailblazer in lived experience discussion in the public realm, she's a very good friend of mine. She was there. Angela Lynch, I mean, Ange is just one of the most in-depth family law experts I've ever come across and their support and their encouragement and their willingness to share and my willingness to listen means that we have a great working relationship. Is there anything, um, because I mean what you've, you've mentioned this like so many times now around the collaboration and that need to pass the mic and that need to work together and that's not necessarily what we would have heard in the past um, from other people in you know leading various not-for-profits in this space and I understand completely why because it is such a tough environment and there is this competition for funding that unfortunately has to occur which is just so ridiculous but um, it sounds like you're really trying to you know, really push that so much again I just wanted to see if there's anything that you think helps or traits that you have or how to make that happen you know one thing to lead how do you lead in a way that says hey come along other people who don't necessarily work in this organization let's let's do this together I'm not interested in being right I'm interested in the work and the work is critical the work has no room for ego the work is about women and kids being safe and I am authentic in that message. I know that I am because I, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. The work is what you have to concentrate on. And I think that people respond to that genuine authenticity because I'm I'm not interested in a funding battle, a power battle, a hierarchical power structure. I'm not interested in any of that. I am interested in the work. And if at the end of my day I can say, do you know what, we did some great work today that's going to help women and kids stay safe, then it's been a successful day. So, and, and I think it's understanding that when you're in this kind of job, you are going to come across really tough stuff. You're going to come across people who don't want the power to power structure to change due to fear, due to fear that they'll lose their seat at the table. I don't have any of that. I just want women and kids to be safe. I want to be out of a job. I wish we didn't have a need for it. So it's showing up authentically with your belief in what you're doing and your belief in the work. That is the most successful and most 
amazing nonprofit leaders that I've been privileged to learn from. It is about who is benefiting from this work and that must be your focus at all times. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. I feel like you offered so many gems just at the end there, which <laughs> I want to take in that whole idea of that one day, you know, that if you can, what, what, what's something great that you can do in this one day that is so meaningful and important, especially when the challenge is so vast and so hard. If you can you know, contribute in one way each day, that is an incredible thing to be able to do. And also that you're ready to be out of the job. I hope that I hope that that can happen in our lifetimes. I hope that can happen in the next decade. I hope that we can Me too. You know, maybe you'll return to your opera singing career and we'll see you doing something <laughs> very, very different in the future. And, yeah, so thank you for joining us. I hope you'll come and do this again. You're obviously extremely knowledgeable and passionate and um, it was just wonderful to hear from you. And congratulations again on the uh, Emerging Leader in the Not-for-Profit Sector Award. Thank you. Thanks for all you do at Women's Agenda to elevate the voices of women. I just think it's the most amazing thing and so happy to have been here today. Thank you. Thank you. So next up, we are going to go to my colleague, Tala Lambert, who sat down this week with Amanda Rishworth, Minister for Families and Social Services. So they took this opportunity to uh, talk about the new Carer Inclusive Workplace Initiative. The framework was announced by the Albanese government at the end of October during Carers Week, and the government believes that it will be a win for all unpaid carers in Australia, but also a win for employers. But they do need industry to get on board. So here's Tala speaking with Minister Rishworth. Minister Rishworth, it's excellent to have you on the crux. Thanks so much for joining. Great to be with you. As Social Services Minister, you've really got your work cut out for you in the present climate. And there are so many critical issues facing us at the moment. One of these areas is, of course, the unpaid care economy um, and putting in place infrastructure and policies that will better support the 2.65 million people in Australia currently balancing work and care responsibilities. During Carers Week at the end of October, you announced a new important framework and initiative to do this. So the Carer Inclusive Workplace Initiative, can you share a bit more about this policy? Yeah, look, thanks. We know that there are so many unpaid carers. One in nine Australians actually do unpaid care. And that's in addition often to family caring responsibilities, but then someone might be also caring for an elderly parent or an adult child, for example, someone with a disability. So it is actually a large portion of the Australian community that has those caring responsibilities. And it does predominantly fall on women. And so what we wanna do is uh, encourage workplaces and employers to have a look at uh, their policies and procedures about how inclusive they are as an employer to accommodate someone's caring responsibilities as well as uh, work responsibilities. It's what we know if uh, uh, through a small number of changes, a small number of flexibilities, that that can actually make a huge difference um, for that carer. But it also means that that employer gets a really valuable employee. And when we know there's workforce shortages right across the country, we are seeing this initiative as a win for carers, but also potentially a win for employers as well. 
Yeah, 100%. I think that's often the missing part of the whole equation and something that people don't factor into. Can you provide some more details about the specific initiatives and programs outlined in the policy? And I guess how they'll support these carers in their caregiving roles, but also ease the pressure for them at work? Look, absolutely. So what this tool, well, there's a number of tools that actually can be taken up by employers. And there's uh, 11 questions that are kind of a self-assessment tool. So an employer can go on and answer these 11 questions. And that will determine what policies and practices may exist already in the workplace and where there could be some room for improvement. And then there's going to be e-learning resources to actually support that employer get more confident and to make those changes that really can make them a a carer inclusive friendly workplace so we think it is really a key part to make sure that employers uh, have that confidence um, to do that and when you hear about the stories when an employer has made those adjustments People are really, really, you know, there's just some wonderful stories that come out. And you, as I said, employers gain a really useful and productive employee. So these will actually help educate employers. But importantly, there is also going to be resources released later this year that will actually support carers have those conversations with their employers, how to ask for more flexible hours. So um, it's, it's, it's very useful. Another tool that is also available is for employers to start those conversations. What type of questions should they be asking? Um, what should be in their staff surveys to get a better understanding about the needs of their employers and uh, employees? So um, overall, I think this is a really missing piece of the puzzle and I think we'll have a really, really good benefits for employers that might want to do better and employees who want to get the opportunity or, or prospective employees who want to get the opportunity to get some employment. What's really interesting is there is a logo and once uh, an employer has been able to show they're proficient in those 11 areas and they'll actually be able to display a carers inclusive logo and be a bit of an employer of choice. So um, there's lots of benefits in here from the employers as well as obviously carers to get that foot in the workplace and make sure they're able to get a job but also develop a career. You mentioned just earlier uh, around the the topic of of flexibility and how this would be a big part of it. And we know that workplace flexibility or at least the conversation around workplace flexibility has certainly kind of grown in recent years. But 57% of our readers noted this year that they'd been discriminated against by their employer for requesting flexible leave or taking it Um, and many of these women would be seeking flexibility to better juggle competing priorities and and care responsibilities. Why do you feel employers need to overcome this prejudice and and I guess how how do they? Yeah look it is often um, uh, when I speak with um, carers about their experience often employers imagine the whole thing is too hard Um, But what this workplace care initiative will do will actually demonstrate that just some small adjustments can actually make a big difference. And look, sometimes it's flexibility, but the other area I often hear from carers is actually about 
predictability. So, you know, in a place where rosters are changing all the time, you can never pick a day that you can take your loved one to a medical appointment, for example. So it's about taking the carer's perspective and just being a little bit more responsive to their needs. But equally, our government has changed the Fair Work Act to give more rights to carers and allow for them to appeal those decisions in the Fair Work Commission if uh, their employer has not been responsive enough. But we want to get the understanding through that it shouldn't get to that. There's actually a whole lot of benefits. Um, and, and as unpaid carers often tell me, they're good at juggling. They're good at juggling a lot of things all at once, multitasking, all of those sorts of things. And so that, that's actually a really valuable skill uh, that many, many employers could benefit from. So if there is an attitude change. There needs to be an attitude that it's not not as hard as people think it is, um, but also giving carers the confidence to, I guess, you know, be direct and assertive about what they need. And that is going to be launched, that those resources are going to be launched later next year, knowing what your rights are, but also importantly, how to have those conversations. You've talked a bit about the, the benefits, but from a, a purely economic standpoint, what are the benefits of protecting and supporting carers at work? And what are the expected outcomes and performance indicators for this policy? Yeah, so look, one of the key areas, of course, is the economic security for unpaid carers. If uh, we know that many unpaid carers are 1.6 times more likely to be considered poor or very poor compared to average Australians. So we know unpaid carers are often earning less money and that's often because they can't find uh, employment that, that lets them juggle those two things. So so not there'll be economic security, but we've also found that when an employer meets the needs of a carer, their well-being, of course, is, is so much better. And measures of well-being is really important. So you get a healthier workforce um, and you get a, a more economic, secure workforce. But there's also so many benefits from the employer. And as we said, you get reliable, skilled workers, and particularly in a time where there's workforce shortages. You know, we hear employers complain quite a lot that they can't find people uh, to do the work, yet there is this workforce ready to come on board. So there are huge benefits in terms of workforce participation um, that can help the economy, um, as well as employers finding really loyal, loyal employees. And at the Jobs and Skills Summit, we heard the experience of one of these unpaid carers. Um, she talked about how the first workplace was not you know, flexible at all, and she just up and left. Second workplace was, and she's been a loyal, loyal employee for a long period of time because they've met their needs. And employers, I, I know, are desperately looking for those employer, employees that really work for the, you know, are loyal to the business. So that's that's the huge benefit as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How has the, the policy and the framework been developed exactly? And, and have you brought in a diversity of carers across spaces as well as industry leaders? Yeah, look, we've handed this over to really experts. So Carers Australia has led this work and has had a number of really important steering committees. They've had a lived experience 
group in forming this work of carers that have actually had lived experience. But if we don't get industry on board, then we're not going to get this to work. So industry has been involved as well. And then we've had experts in, in carers kind of programs. So we've brought those three groups together under Carers Australia or Carers Australia has brought them together to develop this. So it's been very thought through, uh, very uh, informed and um, the resources are very accessible. So we very much hope um, that there is a big take up of these. And if I could just through, um, I will find the website to encourage anyone to go. It's careerinclusive.com.au. So I'd encourage people uh, listening to go to that site. Get on it. Minister, just one last question. This is obviously an amazing first step, but where does a policy like that ultimately go? And how would you like to see the playing field levelled for carers in general? Yeah, look, it's it's this is not the silver bullet, you know. We need to make sure that we have lots of initiatives in place to support unpaid carers and, and carers in general. I mean, that balance of family, other responsibilities and work is is so important. And I mentioned, you know, changes to the industrial relations laws to provide more rights for, for people um, to request flexibility. So that's certainly part of it. But our government is looking at how we bring in a national carers strategy. So really bringing all the elements together at a national level to look at what pathway we can take to make that balance of caring responsibilities easier. There is the carers gateway at the moment, which is kind of a one-stop shop for unpaid carers to look at peer support, perhaps respite if they need it, and counselling if they need it. So there's some resources there, but we need a holistic pathway for our unpaid carers, which includes workplaces, but also for those carers that employment just isn't an option. What are the supports that we can put in place for those carers as well? So we are taking a much more holistic look and need to consider how we pursue that. Well, it's excellent to see this issue being addressed in government. So thank you very much for that. Um, Minister Rishworth, thank you for joining again. Thank you. Thank you to Minister Rishworth for sharing that conversation with us and to my colleague Tala who was able to take that interview this week. And that is it for us this week. So thank you for listening to The Crux. This is the weekly Women's Agenda podcast. A reminder, you can subscribe to our Lunchtime Daily Newsletter where you can access and receive all the stories that we have published that day. Thank you for listening. Thank you.